Are you ready? Here we go. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. We'll look at verses 1 through 12. Now, we could title our message this morning, Deja Vu, all over again, because the fact is we're going to repeat a scene we've seen in chapters 23 and 24, but there will be different names incorporated in the narrative. Now, in the midst of all he encountered and endured, we made note of the fact last week that Paul held fast to his confession and did not waver in spite of the external pressures he was experiencing of both a religious and political nature. Now, we learned last week in 2413 to 16 that Paul said, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I, what's the next word? Confess to you. That according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, Paul said, you know what, they can't, improve, they can't prove any of these things they're accusing me of. But I will confess to this. And he gave us four basic components that need to be part of our confession, even as a, at such a time as this, that we have to hold fast to in the day and hour in which we live. Now, from what we learned last week, I personalized it for this week in our review. Listen, we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen. Amen? We believe all the word of God is true. We accept that there are two eternal destinies. I'm not sure why we're losing interest here so early. And lastly, we strive to live a life that is morally pure. These were Paul's confessions, and we need to have them as part of ours. Now, in light of these four things, we made three observations from last week. And the first was this, there's no such thing as a cut and paste confession. No such thing as a cut and paste confession because we need to confess the whole of the word of God as true. We also learned from Paul's situation that places of difficulty are great platforms to preach from. As a matter of fact, when the hour is dark and you shed the light for other people to see, it has a greater impact than at other times. And we also learn that the gospel cannot be improved upon, only infringed upon. Now, it is popular today to take a cut and paste approach to teaching the Bible, but there is nothing that is more spiritually and therefore eternally dangerous than that practice because it puts the reader in authority over God to determine what was inspired and what was not. By the way, that's something that Lucifer did, and I highly recommend avoiding doing anything that Satan does. Now, Paul was in prison, yet he continued in his confession. He didn't let the circumstances either change or water down or silence him as he proclaimed truth. And we are under the same spiritual and political pressures that put him in prison. And therefore, in such a time as this, we need to hold fast to our confession as well. Now, those who add to or take away from the gospel are breaking the terms of it. And that is what infringe means, to break the terms of an implied agreement. And when you 
add to or take away from the gospel and the word of God, you are robbing the gospel of its soul-saving power. After all, James 1.21, James said, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to do what? Save your souls. Now, as I mentioned, our text is a bit of a replay of what we covered in our last two chapters. After all, we're going to read of a plot to lie in wait along the road between Jerusalem and Caesarea in order to kill Paul. This time it's done by the chief rulers instead of 40 plus men who took a vow not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Paul stands before the Roman procurator this time. Instead of being in front of Felix, he's in front of Festus. Strong accusations are labeled against Paul again, but this time not by a hired orator named Tertullus, but directly by the ones who hired him. And Paul again declares his innocence, says to Festus what he said to Felix, and that is, they can't prove any of it. I am innocent of all charges. Now, that brings us to our point in our title this morning. The fact that the last efforts to ambush Paul were unsuccessful and these efforts to ambush Paul will be unsuccessful. The fact that one Roman procurator could not render a verdict against Paul and Festus can't either in our text. The fact that a hired orator was ineffective and now those who obtained his services are ineffective in accusing Paul as well. This reminds us of a great truth, one of my favorite truths in all the Bible and probably yours. And it comes from one of my favorite verses from which we derive our title. And that is, here it is, no weapon form will prosper. Our title this morning is no weapon form will prosper. It is taken directly from Isaiah 54, 17, which says no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue, say every tongue, every tongue which speaks against you in judgment, you shall condemn. Here's why. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is from me, says who? Says the Lord. Now, this verse basically outlines our verses this morning. Weapons against Paul in the form of an ambush did not prosper. The tongues that spoke against him in judgment, he condemned. He said, I'm innocent of all charges. They're lying. He made his declaration as being a servant of the Lord, one who had been declared righteous by the same. Now, for anyone wondering, how can we as a church appropriate verses written to Israel in the church age? And we need to understand that while this was written to Israel, It was written about God's servants. We are God's servants today. And therefore, because this is a commitment by the Lord based on his nature and character, anything that is written in the Old Testament that is solely based on the character of God is free to be appropriated by the church, even though it was initially written to Israel. (coughs) Now, one more thing before we begin, and we haven't begun yet, by the way. There are those who say, well, yeah, Paul wound up in Rome and Nero killed him. But let me remind you that Paul died at the appointed time. There were other efforts to kill him and they were unsuccessful. And we have examples in our recent chapters, just like Jesus. They were trying to kill Jesus multiple times, but he said, my time has not yet come. And therefore, since it is appointed unto man, wants to die, God is in control of that moment. 
The devil cannot snatch us from the Father's hands. He cannot separate us from the Father's love. So let's dig in and prepare for warfare that is looking more and more like what Paul encountered in his time in our day. And remember, weapons formed against us will not prosper. Amen? Stand and read with me, please, from Acts 25, verses 1 through 12. Acts 25, let's start in verse 1. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Well, he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. And Lord, we are grateful for this equipping time we have together this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying from your matchless and infallible word. Lord, we pray this morning as the end result of our time is a great passion for lost souls, a boldness to speak, Lord, when others are crying for our silence. Transform us this morning, God. We open our hearts and minds to you. And we ask, Lord, that your word would indeed not return void as you promised it would not. Speak to us now, we pray. For we ask it in the name above all others, the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Josephus tells us that the reason we have this one-word exit of Felix is because he had been summoned to Rome to give an answer for his acts of violence and putting down any type of dispute in the Judean region. And history tells us if it had not been for his brother Pallas, who was a friend of the emperor, Felix would have been severely punished or even put to death. And he was replaced by this man we're introduced to now as procurator of Judea, a man named Festus, who actually occupied the position for only two years. And he died after that time. Yet history says that Festus was probably the most moderate of all Judean procurators, both before and after him. Now, after his arrival in Caesarea, 
he within three days heads to Jerusalem to face the very thing that Claudius Lysias had faced earlier from the hands of the high priest and the chief men of the Jews. That was a secret plot to kill Paul along the road from Caesarea to Jerusalem, only in reverse order this time to bring him from Caesarea back to Jerusalem. Now, we know the first plot two years earlier to kill Paul did not prosper. And it didn't prosper because Claudius Lysias sent a entourage of some 470 military men to assure Paul's arrival from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now, Festus handles this in a quite different manner. When the high priest and the chief men of the Jews come to him and propose or ask a favor against Paul, that he transfer Paul back to Jerusalem so they can kill him along the road. And he doesn't send an escort. He just says, no, that's not going to happen. Paul's going to remain in Caesarea. Now, they present their request to Festus as a favor. Now, that tells us that they were trying to figure out exactly where Festus stood in relation to the position of Felix. We were told in 2427 that after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a what? A favor left Paul bound. So here a favor is requested, and they wanted to see exactly what the leanings were of this new procurator. Now, whether Festus had heard of the plot that was previously against Paul to slay him along the road by the 40-plus assassins, or whether he was aware of what they were actually asking for this time, last time the plot was thwarted, by extraordinarily ordinary means. There was no earthquake like the last time Paul was in prison at Philippi. No angel escorted Paul out of the prison or out of the praetorium like he did with Peter. The chains didn't fall off Paul's hands this time. Paul's nephew found out about the plot to kill him. He told Paul, Paul sent him to Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias gave Paul a military escort. Extraordinarily ordinary things but they were all from the sovereignty of God. Now, just as we don't know how Paul's nephew found out, we don't know why Paul or why Festus said no to the request concerning Paul. But what we do know, and our first reminder that weapons formed against us will not prosper, comes from verse 4. We're told that Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Now, here's the first thing for us to remember. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Amen? So, we need to consider this when looking at the attacks we are encountering today. Listen, God is sovereign even over the places we'd rather not be. God is sovereign even over the places we'd rather not be. Now, the last time, God protected Paul with an armed escort. This time, he told him, stay put for his own protection. Humans may have been involved in the process, but divine sovereignty was unquestionably in play. And we know that for one reason. We know it from Acts 23, 11 to 15, where we're told the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. 
They came to the chief priests and elders and said, we bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore together with the council suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries of him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the Lord told Paul that he would bear witness of him in Rome and no one and nothing was going to change or stop that. The weapon of killing Paul by ambush that was formed two years earlier failed. This one will never get off the ground either. The first time Paul had a king's escort that assured his protection and arrival in Caesarea, here God has him stay put in the place he'd already been for some two years. Now, Caesarea Maritima is right on the coast. It's a beautiful place. And Herod had built his own resort there, had a massive outdoor saltwater pool, had a hippodrome where they used to have chariot races and things of that nature and other sporting events. And it was beautiful and is beautiful today to go to Caesarea Maritima. But after two years, even a beautiful place, you'll get tired of if that place is not home. Do you think Paul wanted to go home? Do you think Paul wanted to get out of the praetorium and quit looking at the four walls? Of course he did. Now, let me remind you of an encounter that Jesus had with his own disciples in Matthew 8, 18. We're told when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart and go out in the middle of the lake of Galilee and die in the middle. Is that what he said? No, he said, depart to where? The other side. Now, later in the same chapter, 23 to 27, we're told when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Did Jesus give the disciples their destination? Go to the... So where were they going to wind up? On the other side. But the fact that he had given the disciples their destination and that he was in the boat with them, being in the middle of a great tempest, wasn't where they wanted to be. So they woke Jesus up. We're perishing. Do something about this, having no idea that he was going to exercise his power over nature. Now, they didn't want to be in the middle of a storm any more than Paul wanted to be in the middle of the praetorium in Caesarea. But God was sovereign in both places and God was sovereign in both situations. Now, listen this morning. As a church, we are somewhere that I'd rather not be. We are in between the proverbial rock and a hard place. We are looking hard, praying hard for where we're going to have a church home in the future. Is God sovereign over this place we are in? Is he sovereign in the midst of this difficult circumstance? Are the weapons formed against us going to prosper? No. And listen, make no mistake, we are under enemy attack. And make no mistake, the enemy will not prosper. He will not prevail. 
And God is sovereign even over places and situations we would rather avoid altogether. He is sovereign over secret plots to ambush us. He is sovereign over enduring great tempests that try and keep us from our destination. How do we know for sure? Because we have a promise just like Paul did. And it came from Jesus just like Paul's did. That promise is in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus came and spoke to them as disciples saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, at least until February 2020. (laughs) I am with you always till when? Even to the end of the age. Now listen. Jesus is the head of this church. He has told us to make disciples of the nations. And we, with all of our hearts and minds, have been trying to do so. We've been baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to the best of my human ability, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, I have been trying to teach all of us to observe the commandments of Jesus. And he has promised Calvary Chapel Tustin, I will be with you until the end of the age. Now, he said, I'll be with you always. Does always include right now? Does always include our situation? God is sovereign. God is in control. He who promised is faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, let's look at five through eight a second time. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Well, he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Now, Festus seems to have a genuine interest in finding out about Judaism and the practice of the Jews because he stays with them or among them for 10 days. And then he also is shown to be a man of action as he arrives back in Caesarea after this more than 10 days. And he immediately calls for Paul's case to be heard and for him to be brought before him as he sat upon the judgment seat. He didn't procrastinate like Felix and after many days call for Paul again to speak with him in hopes of a bribe. Now, we're not told the specifics of the complaints against Paul, the serious complaints, but we can see they're the same complaints that we encountered in 23 and 24 when Paul stood before Felix and was accused by Tertullian, the hired order of the chief priest. Now, we're told in Acts 24:10 to 18 about exactly the details of what Paul was being accused of, that he said they couldn't prove any of them. And then he confessed, as we understood this morning in our reminder from last week, about the components of his confession, his belief in the resurrection of the dead, the just and unjust, and so on, as we talked about a moment ago. But Paul gives the same defense before Festus, basically in abbreviated form. And that means that the accusations against him didn't stick last time, nor are they going to stick this time, because for the second time, there was no proof. And we need to recognize that this is the second time 
that Paul has gone through the same exact thing. Now, let me ask you, have you ever felt not this again? Have you ever felt maybe, is this ever going to end? Is anybody here this morning? Have you ever felt those things? I can't believe this is happening again. Or I can't believe this thing hasn't come to an end. This situation has remained the same. I'm sure we've all wondered beyond those personal things we've all gone through. How are people who are bent on evil seeming to prosper in our world today? How are they allowed to keep doing what they are doing? We might ask collectively in our hearts and minds, why can the abortionists keep their business open and businesses booming? We might be thinking and should be, how can politicians who hate our country and constitution staying in public office? We might even think at times, how come the innocent child dies when the drunk driver kills them and they walk away unscathed? We might be thinking about all these things, but we also need to think of what Asaph said in Psalm 33, or 73, 1 through 8. Truly, God is good. We can stop right there. He is good. Amen. He's good to Israel, certainly. He's good to the church as well. To such as are pure in heart. But as for me, Asaph says, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pangs in their death. They die fat, dumb, and happy, we might say. But their strength is firm. They're not in trouble like other men, nor are they plague like other men. Excuse me, therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. I don't know about you, but I can relate to how Asaph was feeling. Come on, get on the bus now. Don't leave me hanging up here. I can relate to how Asaph was feeling. And the list of things that troubled him continued. He went on to further say, the ungodly seem to have it easy, even though they question the existence and therefore the authority of God. Yet, he kept talking, he kept thinking, he kept working his way through and he solved his own dilemma in the same chapter in 16 to 19. And he said, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. I couldn't even think about it anymore. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought, brought to destruction as in a, or desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with what? Terrors. Now, this should remind us of our next truth. That weapons formed against us will not prosper. Listen this morning. Enemy advances are not enemy victories. Enemy advances are not enemy victories. Think about some of the stories we've read in the Old Testament. Think about Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers. I think Joseph on the front side would have rather avoided the two years that he spent in prison for something that neither he nor anyone else had done when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of trying to assault her sexually. Now, I'm sure that ask in advance, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have preferred to avoid the whole burning fiery furnace thing. 
I'm sure they would rather have skipped that incident. And Daniel most likely would have said no if he was asked in advance to the whole spend the night in the lion's den. But consider the outcomes of these enemy advances. Joseph, after sold by his own brothers to Midianite slave traders, winds up second in command to the most powerful man in the whole world. And then when his brothers, in the midst of this seven-year famine that was all over the globe, come before him in hopes of obtaining uh, meals to uh, provide for their family, Joseph says to them, after the revelation that he is indeed Joseph, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph went through horrible things in order to get to the place where God was going to use him to save, in essence, the known planet at that point in time. Now, think about what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar called them in and said, you know what, I built this 90-foot statue of me, told the whole world, gave an order, a directive to the whole kingdom. When you hear the music of the salt uh, and the lyre, you are to bow down and worship the object. And it's been reported to me that you refuse to bow down. What do you say to that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we don't have any need to answer you. And they said, you know what, king, we're not going to bow. And listen, and Nebuchadnezzar said, who is the God that is able to deliver you? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, well, maybe he'll deliver us and maybe he won't. But we ain't bowing. We aren't bowing. Even if God allows us to be killed by the flames, we're not bowing to your idol. Now, after this exchange and the furnace was heated seven times hotter than it ought to be, and the men who went in to throw them into the furnace were killed by the heat of the flame. After all that happened, Daniel 3, 24 to 27 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, like they answered every question from the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had what? Did the weapon formed against them prosper? No. They spoke condemnation to Nebuchadnezzar, said, we're not bowing to your golden idol. Now listen to the rest of the description once they were out of the fire. The hair of their head was not singed. Boy, there's nothing, no smell worse than burning hair. But the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Now, remember Daniel in the same situation. The king had issued a degree by trickery of the governors around him, the satraps and the other lords around him, saying that you couldn't worship any god or pray to any god for 30 days except for the king. And then Daniel violated this, going home as was his custom from his early days. He threw open the windows of his house on the second story, facing Jerusalem, and prayed three times that day and found himself in the lion's den. Daniel six eighteen to 22 says, The king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. 
and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. (coughs) The king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke saying to Daniel, Daniel, what's the next word? Servant of the living God. Has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said with the customary greeting, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, king, I have done no wrong before you. Now listen, on the front side, I'm sure these men would have said no to the scenario. But looking back, I thought, I think they would say, bring it on, Lord. You'll be with me through everything. And listen this morning, CCT. Someday we're going to look back on our building dilemma and say, yeah, we'll do it all again. God was in the middle of it all. And we have nothing to fear. Paul was in prison for two years, but he was no captive. And yes, the enemy is making advances against the church today. And yes, our personal enemies seem to get away with it sometimes. But their weapons will not prosper against us because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So listen this morning. Don't let your feet slip because of what the enemy is trying to do to the church in our country and around the world. Don't let your feet slip because of his advances against CCT and his plot against this church. He cannot, he will not prevail. And Matthew 16, 18 tells us why. The Lord said to Jesus, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus chose the thrice denier to preach the first gospel message of the church age. 3,000 souls were added to God's kingdom, and God has been adding souls every day since that time. And all attempts to destroy the church have been unsuccessful, and they will be successful. The ga- unsuccessful, the gates of Hades, have not prevailed, will not prevail, and they will not prevail against CCT. Now... I have to warn you, I might get excited in this last section. But Festus, verse 9, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I've done no wrong, and you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I don't object to dying, but... If there's nothing in these things of me which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now again, we see a glimpse into Festus' character and how unlike Felix he is. (coughs) He asked Paul, Would you be willing to go up to Jerusalem? And then he gives Paul a bit of a Uh, comfort, if you will, where he says, I'll listen to your case myself. Paul wisely says, listen, you know, and I know, there's no charges against me that are valid. Now, with this statement, Paul was making it publicly known that the Roman procurator had nothing that could validate sending Paul to Jerusalem for trial, even if it was before Festus himself, because there was no religious violation whatsoever. And it was the one thing, as we mentioned last week, 
than Rome left in the hands of the Jews. Matters concerning their religion and the Temple Mount. Paul then says to Festus, listen, if I've done something deserving of death, I'll take it like a man. I'm not afraid to die. But since the accusations against me about violating Jewish law, the Temple Mount creating a religious uprising are unfounded, there is no legal ground for you to send me to Jerusalem. And Paul's appeal to Caesar was the equivalent of saying, since there are no valid religious charges, then let's talk about the political ones that are made before me. And he appeals to Caesar, which is his right as a Roman citizen. Now, Festus then confers with a concilium or a group of leading citizens, as the Roman governors did in those days. And the council agreed that Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, had appealed to Caesar, and that's where he had to go. Thus, Festus was now obligated to send Paul to Caesar, even though there were no political charges that were valid against him either. The disturbances Paul was accused of were religious in nature, but civil in character. And thus, under Roman law, Caesar himself was obligated to hear Paul's case. Now, maybe Paul was picking up on the fact that Festus seemed to be leaning to doing the Jews a favor when he was asked if he was willing to go for trial, and thus Paul appealed to Caesar. Now, Paul well understood in Romans 13, 3 to 5, where he reminds us that human government is an ordinance by God, or of God, and it is also defined by God, where Romans 13, 3 to 5 says, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Paul obviously wasn't. Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, what? Be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices what? Evil. Now this is part of why I believe Paul appealed to Caesar. He believed that God had ordained human government and that good behavior under the government would receive just treatment, even though he was being unjustly treated by his own People, He understood that the ordinance of government was that that was defined by God. Now, think about this this morning. We would live in a different world if world governments obeyed God's parameters for human government. We would live in a completely different world if the world simply obeyed God. But that's not our point. This is. You ready? Listen. Some weapons won't prosper because we don't let them. Some weapons won't prosper because we don't let them. Paul knew his rights. Paul knew he was right. He stood his ground and he used Roman law to his advantage. So, you ready for me to rattle our cages a little bit this morning? Will you listen all the way through? You promise? You promise? Here we go. Buckle up. Ready? <laughs> Say ready. Here it is. Abortion is happening in us in our country because the church is allowing it. Abortion is happening in our country because the church is allowing it. Political corruption is advancing in our country because the church is letting it. Socialism is becoming popular today, but the church is because the church is doing nothing to refute it. Listen this morning, here we go, one more. Entertainment is becoming more immoral today because the church is watching it. Why do I say this? I say this for this reason. There's a group today that is driving policy in our country. 
and they number less than 4 million, and I think that is a generous estimation. They go by the label of LGBTQ, elemental PQRSTUV. It keeps getting longer and longer, but you know who I'm talking about. And they are driving policy in this country, and again, their number is less than 4 million. Listen, there are 60 to 90 million Christians in this country. We ought to own this place. We shouldn't be pushed around by 4 million people because they are united together in their cause. And listen, the fact is the church is so busy fighting over either when the rapture is or if there is a rapture. The church is so busy fighting over whether we are elect by predestination or come to God of our own free will that it seems like we don't have the time to fight the devil who is our actual enemy. Listen this morning. We are not in Iran. We are not in China. We are not in Russia. We live in the United States of America and we have the right to speak our minds and to redress our grievances with the government and we need to stand up and take this country back. It's becoming more and more evil by the day. Paul said, you're not going to bully me into doing something that I don't have to do. You're not going to bully me into doing something that is against my God. You're not going to bully me into doing something that is illegal. Listen this morning, according to the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, it is against the law for Congress to hinder the work of the church. And we need to stand up. We need to quit getting pushed around. Listen, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Light is an idiom for truth. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt is an idiom for purity and preservation. And Jesus gave this illustration that would be readily understood by the listeners in his day. Have you ever heard (coughs) the saying of a man being worth his salt? You know where that comes from? That comes from the Roman Empire. Because Roman soldiers were often paid in salt in order to preserve the meat that they would catch and kill on their own. And once salt lost its preserving abilities, it was then thrown out on the Roman highway and trampled underfoot by men and the chariots passing by. And Jesus says, listen up, believer. When the church quits being the purifying influence of the world, when the church quits telling the world the truth, it's going to get run over by man. We've been getting run over long enough. It is time for us to stand up. And the weapon of sending Paul to Jerusalem for trial, only to be ambushed on the way there, it didn't prosper because he didn't let it. He said, I'm not going. You're not doing that to me. I have rights as a Roman citizen, and I'm going to exercise them. Now listen, in Matthew 21, 12 to 13, Jesus went into the temple of God and did what? Drove out. What's the next word? All those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and of the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into what? 
a den of thieves. Listen, Jesus took action against the wrongful use of his house. We need to take action today against the abuse of God's house. We need to stand up today and let our voices be heard in these United States of America. And listen, God may lead us into places and situations we'd rather not be in. Sometimes it's for our own good and protection. But even there, we need to take a stand and not let weapons formed against us prosper. Now listen this morning. You promised to stay the whole way through. Okay? So buckle up. We got more. We have an election coming up. I believe in the future of our nation hangs in the balance of this election. I believe it's the most important election in the history of the United States. And let me say this. You may not like our president, but not voting or voting for one of the other candidates is a vote for abortion. It is a vote for sexual immorality and its advances. And in some cases, it's a vote for socialism. Listen which is a sin. Socialism is a sin. God said, say God said. God said if a man doesn't work, he ought not to eat. It is not within God's design for human government to provide for the people unless the people, as Paul would say, are really orphans, are really in need, really can't take care of themselves. It is not the government's job to pay for college. It is not the government's job to pay for any of our needs. It is our own responsibility. Uh, Solomon said in his wisdom that God had given to him that we are to enjoy the fruit of the work of our own hands, not mooch off the government. Socialism is a sin. And sometimes weapons don't prosper because we don't let them. We can't let these socialists and Marxists have this country. We have a responsibility to this country to be light, which is truth tellers, and to be salt, which is purifying and preserving. Otherwise, we're going to hand it over to those who don't know God, who don't love God, who are enemies of God and seek the destruction of this nation that God has blessed since its foundation. After all, God said, say God said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord in Psalm 30, 12. He also said in Proverbs 29, 2, that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Do you want four to eight years of groaning in the future? then we have to stand up and let our voices be heard. We have to get to the ballot box and we have to vote our faith as best as we can. There will never be a perfect candidate. Every candidate's going to be a sinner. Every candidate's going to do stupid things. Every candidate is going to have a history of lies and poor behavior. And we need to stand up for the one who's going to stand up for the church. Even if you don't like him. Even if you think he tweets too much. We need to stand up and vote. It's too long we've been silent. It's too long we've let a minority push around the majority. It is time for the church to unify in the just cause of the continuation of this nation as one nation under God. And as soon as the church becomes indivisible, There will be liberty and justice for all. 
We need to take a stand. We need to exercise our rights, and that starts in the voting booth. And listen, our president isn't perfect. Maybe he's not even super close. But I'll tell you one thing, and listen to me. He may have changed his position on some things, but right now he's pro-life. Right now he's pro-evangelical Christians. Right now he's concerned about the nation of Israel like no other president, no other president has been in Israel's modern history. Now maybe you can't get behind a bunch of the other stuff that he says and does, but you better get behind that. Otherwise we're going to hand it over to people who are going to kill this country. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to sit down and let that happen. And I don't think God wants us to. Because once the government gets outside their own boundaries, we have to do like Peter said. There comes a time when we ought to obey God rather than men. And the government is saying what you believe is a Christian is illegal. And that's not the truth. Those charges are unproven. They're saying we're bigots and we're haters. Listen. I speak out against the things that we speak out against because they're the dominant things that are happening in our world today. I speak out against the LGBT movement because God said that's a sinful behavior. But that doesn't mean I hate them. I would that they would come to Jesus. I would that they would come to saving faith in Christ. Listen, if God can clean up the drunk and set free the drug abuser like me and the violent man like me, and the one headed for divorce like me, then he can change somebody's sexual preferences just like he can say, let there be light, and there was light. (laughs) California says it's illegal to try and change anybody's sexual preferences. Well, God says no to that. He says, I do it all the time. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm in the people-changing business. I'm one, God speaking, says who makes old things pass away and I can make all things become new. This is who we serve. This is who we've been commissioned by. This is who we're standing for. So listen, maybe we don't have a perfect president and we don't, but we didn't used to either. Abe Lincoln was a good man. Hello? Abe Lincoln was a good man, fought against social injustice and slavery. He was a good man, but he wasn't a perfect man. He was just a man. But he was a man who, in the, on the eve of the Civil War, because both sides had as their mantra, God is with us. Abraham Lincoln was wise enough to say, it doesn't matter that you're with God or God is with us. That's a given. He said, the question is, who's with God? And that's what we need to decide today. Who's with God? God is pro-life. He breathed first life into Adam. Listen, God is anti-socialism. He said, work with your own hands. It'll give you a sense of accomplishment and cause you to strive and accomplish greater things in life. Listen, God is against much of the entertainment that we see today, and we shouldn't be participating in it. 
That's why Job, even as an older man, and because of what we know from chapter 1, we know that he was likely at the age of a grandfather because his children all lived out of the house and were meeting together when they were all collectively killed. But even Job at that age, he said, you know what? I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a young woman to lust after her. Job was a smart man. God said, you know what? Satan, check Job out. He's a righteous man, godly in all of his ways. And listen, church, you got smut in your house, get rid of it. Get rid of it. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what did Jesus do when the temple of the Jews was being used for inappropriate purposes? He drove it out. Go home, clean your house, drive out every tool of the devil that he's crept into your home. And let your home maintain a blessable status. Jesus is coming soon. We're running out of time. Jesus is coming soon. And listen, if this country is going to go down, I say we go down swinging. Amen? Now we'll begin the second hour of the message. I better better pray because we're all getting hungry. Amen? I'm not going to pray for the food, by the way. That's up to you. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Paul being so bold. But Lord, we also thank you for the manner in which he was respectful. And Lord, how he addressed Festus and Felix, who was a total reprobate. He still maintained dignity and character that was worthy of one who bears your name. And Lord, help us to do the same thing. Help us, Lord, also to be bold in our positions. And Lord, we want to love the people as you do. Your word says that you so love the world. And that means all the messed up, sexually dysfunctional, gender dysphoric, whatever the description may be that's arisen in the modern age, you love them enough to send your son to die for them. (coughs) Help us to love them enough to tell them that he did. And we thank you, Lord, for the boldness we find in your word of men like Peter and Paul, and even beyond, all the way back to Joseph and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you for the passion of Ezra, for the temple, and Nehemiah, for the wall around the city. Thank you for so many examples of world changers who, for your glory, stood against the tide. And help us to do so today. Lord, we are thankful for this particular chapter and these verses we've looked at this morning. And Lord, help us to go our way and follow your commands, remembering the weapons formed against us will not prosper, and you are with us to the end of the age. So Lord, stir us up to love and good works in these last days as we eagerly await for your appearing. We thank you that you are coming again, and you've been preparing a place for us. And Lord, as it's been well said, the only thing we can take to heaven with us is people. Help us to grab all we can no matter what their skin tone, no matter what their sexual preference, no matter what their economic status, no matter their ethnicity, no matter what, Lord, you are able to save and your blood is sufficient to cover all sin. So help us to operate with that understanding in these last days. And may you receive glory by all those led to Christ by people in this church. We thank you that you're still adding to the church daily. 
those being saved. Use us to preach the word where others can receive it and be implanted in them and thus save their soul. We thank you for these truths this morning. In Jesus' name, and all the rowdies at CCT said, Amen. Amen.